you, Jordan. Appreciate your kind words. Um, it's a good weekend in the Englert household. Friday marked the release of Hallmark's new Christmas season of films. <laughs> Poking fun at my wife, who currently stepped away to bring my daughter up. But uh, no, it has been a good weekend. That is true, by the way, for all the Hallmark fans. But it has been a good weekend. Uh, it's been a normal weekend. That's why it's been good. The last few weekends, um, either my wife's been out of town, I've been out of town, we've both been out of town. And so just to be in a normal weekend routine is good. And uh, I know that I've been corresponding with Pastor Keith and, and Jordan, and uh, I'm excited this morning to be able to share uh, from God's Word with you uh, a, a sermon titled, God's Redemptive Agenda. It is going to be found in 1 Peter 5, 9 through 11, and we're going to get there eventually. Um, I do have a bit of an intro to get us there, um, but we're, we're going to be there uh, eventually this morning. It won't be that long, but uh, a couple weekends ago, um, I had the opportunity to do something I've never done before. My wife and I, uh, we, we went to Austin, Texas. I've been to Austin before. That wasn't the opportunity, but uh, on, the, on the way back, um, we woke up, or I woke up first, to a text message on Sunday morning uh, from Southwest that said, hey, your, your flight's been canceled. You need to go online and find a new one. I was like, okay. So I go online. This is before I knew that like 2,000 flights had been canceled that weekend by Southwest. But uh, I go online and realize that every flight for the next 48 hours is canceled. By this time, my wife's starting to wake up and I'm like, hey, today is going to be interesting. Um, not sure how it's going to end, but it's going to be an interesting day. And so we go to the airport in our rental on the way there, uh, made a phone call to the rental company to see if they would let us take the car to New Orleans. They said that is an option, but it's going to cost you an additional $1,200, and so that's not an option for me. So uh, I went ahead and returned the car, and we're trying to figure this out. How do we get home? Uh, the, the airport, when they found out what was going on, they pretty much shut down all one-way rentals because they didn't want all their cars to leave and then come back because everyone was in the same boat. And so uh, they weren't allowing one-way rentals. There was also a music festival going on in Austin that weekend. So all the local rental companies had cars that were out. So it was, it was kind of a mess. And so I'm sitting there, and I did what any normal person would do in this situation. Uh, we went ahead and got an Uber to the local U-Haul and rented a 10-foot U-Haul truck and drove... <laughs> Drove that sucker 500 miles, eight and a half hours later, we're pulling into Covington. And uh, I, I remember the look on my wife's face when I first suggested this idea. Husbands, you know the look, right? Like, not too sure about this. Okay. But it was, it was, uh, it was not the greatest drive. I mean, no cruise control, the loudest drive ever. I mean... We couldn't, we didn't even have a conversation. Like, it was such an effort. We were pretty much playing charades. It's like, two words. Me? Hungry. You? Yes. Okay, get off at the next exit. That's, it was a long ride. Um, that has nothing to do with the sermon. That's just Lanyap. Little, little life advice for you. If you ever get stranded, U-Haul. It's the way to go. Um, but this does. All right, so we were in Texas for this reason. Um, my wife uh, has wanted to go to Waco for some time now to see the Magnolia Empire, the one that Chip and Joanna Gaines has built. And if you're not familiar with their story, it's a couple of Baylor graduates in the early 2000s who uh, 
uh, have a keen eye for design and the ability to build things. And uh, through their hard work and their vision, they've been able to build this business kind of small mini empire that has overtaken the city of Waco. And I, I mean that in the greatest way possible. I'm not trying to be sarcastic here or anything. Um, it was really cool whether or not this is your thing, uh, the home renovation industry, or if you were ever into the show Fixer Upper that kind of put uh, this couple on the map. If that was uh, not your thing, what was cool and what you could maybe appreciate was there was a couple of people who used what God gave them to sort of bring life and inject life into a community. And what was really neat was to see um, that this small little town in the middle of nowhere, uh, because of their work in the last two decades, there was business and there was uh, financial resources pouring in. There was tourism coming. And, and so what maybe once wasn't that attractive all of a sudden had an appeal and an attractiveness to it uh, because of their work. And I don't know if home restorations is your thing, but I think uh, at, on some level, the, the idea or the theme of restoration, it, it sort of resonates with all of us, right? I mean, this, this idea of restoration has, has launched into a industry and television shows that, um, you know, obviously there's different uh, iterations and versions of the home renovation television shows. There's shows that uh, revolve around, you know, car restorations and taking old things and making them new, even taking new things and kind of modifying them to make them something they were never intended to be. There's shows where people are building cabins in the middle of the woods. They're building homes off the grid. But the end result is they're always making new things. They're always bringing beauty into areas where there were, was none before. Um, and, and really, uh, these shows about restoration, they, they have a way of sort of resonating with us, right? I mean, how many of you have tried uh, on some level to restore something, right? Maybe, maybe you tried to flip a home. Maybe you tried to just do a room, one, one little remodel in a room. Maybe you yourself have tried to restore a car. Uh, my entire life, my grandparents have always owned uh, at one point or another an Airstream travel trailer. That's what they do. They, they go for long trips and when I was younger, in my, in my early 20s, my grandfather thought it would be a good idea for me to have an Airstream travel trailer. I was trying to tell them this is something that people wait a little bit later in life to do, not necessarily. Uh, but anyway, so he got me this old, uh, this 1948 Airstream. It was, it, it, it was not awesome. It could have been awesome, all right? Um, and it, it was this 16-foot Bambi edition and it was a rust bucket is what it was. But you see all the pictures of what it could be, and there's this attraction to it. And this is appeal. And you're like, wow, this thing could actually be that thing. And so we started to try to renovate it. We started to try to restore it. Um, and, and this restoration did not last long. In fact, I ended up selling it quickly, realizing I was way in over my head. Um, the floor had holes in it. It was rusty. My grandfather handed me a steel wire brush and a can of Rust-Oleum was like, just scrub it and spray this. It'll be fine. I was like, I don't think that's how this works. But anyway, it didn't last. But the appeal, right, the appeal, this desire to take old things and make new things, it's important for us to understand where this comes from today because it's, it's through this lens that I want us to examine this scripture. So if we just do a quick sort of roll back into the book of Genesis and we look at um, how God created his world, right? We see the Garden of Eden. This is, this is God's masterpiece. It's because that's where Adam and Eve existed, the crown of his creation. And, and we read 
chapter 1 and chapter 2, and we see that as God created the world, everything he did, he declared good, right? There was night and day, and it was good. There was land and water, and it was good. There were birds, and there were animals, and there were fish, and it was good. Then there was man and woman, and it was very good. Everything he was doing, it was good, and it was perfect until we get to chapter 3, right? It was good until it wasn't, because in chapter 3, what we find is the disobedience of Adam and Eve, and sin enters the world. And we know that sin shattered everything that God intended. It ushered, in bro- it ushered in brokenness into every aspect of life. And this sin has found its way through generation to generation to generation. And it's why today we experience sickness and death, things like pain and suffering, while we have broken relationships and financial hardships and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And from the moment that this sin happened, God's plan was always redemption and restoration. From the very moment. See, the, the biblical narrative of Scripture, if we look at it, it can be really broken into four parts. There's creation, there's the fall, there's redemption, and then there's restoration. And we read in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 about creation. We read in chapter 3 about the fall. But also in chapter 3, we see the first seeds of redemption being planted. I'm going to butcher this word, but it's a Greek word. And I've got it written down in syllables. Hopefully I pronounce it right. Anyway, it's proto-evangelium is a word that people use to describe the scripture Genesis 3.15. It's, it's a combination of two Greek words. One proto meaning first, the other evangelion meaning good news or gospel. And what scholars say is that Genesis 3.15 is really the first glimpse of the good news or the gospel that we get to see in all of scripture. Genesis 3.15, what's happening, Adam and Eve sin, and it's kind of like, There's a trial happening, right? Like Adam and Eve are here. God's here. Satan's here. The serpent. They're all present. And God's trying to figure out what's going on. Eve's blaming the snake. Adam's blaming Eve. Snake's just like, I did it. Like, it's just, they're all there, right? And God says this to Satan. He says, I will put enmity, and this is Genesis 3.15, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The reason people say this is the first glimpse at the good news is because her offspring includes Jesus, right? Ultimately, it leads to Jesus, and Jesus is the one who is going to crush Satan, who bruise his head, who will defeat sin, death, and hell. And we know that to be true in the gospel, but this is the first glimpse of it. So we see this shift in the story from creation to the fall, now to redemption, and we get glimpses of this all throughout Scripture. In Genesis 12, uh, God makes this promise to Abraham and says, you are going to be a father of many nations. And, and what we learn from reading scripture is that these nations would be God's people, his chosen people, the nation of Israel. In Genesis 17, God declares another promise, a promise that repeats itself nearly 30 times throughout the Old Testament. And it's this promise that I will be their God and they will be my people. And it highlights this desire that God has to have a relationship with humanity the way that he intended before sin entered the world, right? It's, it's this heart of God to redeem things back to how they originally were. We see in Isaiah multiple chapters pointing to the coming of Jesus the Messiah, the ultimate redeemer. And then in Matthew chapter 1, we get a list of Jesus' genealogy, and it starts with Abraham, and it makes its way all the way through the Old Testament ultimately to Jesus. And so we connect this thread going all the way back to Abraham, to Jesus, knowing that God, from the moment his creation was disrupted, had a plan of redemption in his mind. And then the fourth act, restoration, we're not there yet, but we see in Revelation 21, 
John, as he's witnessing uh, a glimpse into heaven, and read the first four verses here, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. It's restoration. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from, from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. There's that promise again that we hear that God uh, said multiple times in the Old Testament, I will be your God, you will be my people. In the end, we see God declaring this ultimately and finally. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Restoration brings us to this new order of life, and it's something that we'll experience on the other side of heaven. And so I say all this because when we think about the scripture we're going to look at today and the lens I want us to view it through, we have to understand that we're intricately woven into this story, this story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. See, we're made in God's image. And because we're made in his image, we long and yearn for what existed in Eden before sin. All of humanity, even those who don't know Jesus, we, we desire this. We desire peace and harmony. We desire uninhibited intimacy with God. We desire our lives to be purposeful and meaningful. This is how God intended his creation to live. And even those who don't know Jesus, in some way they articulate that. That's why these one-hour TV shows built around the theme of restoration, it's like a quick, quick hit of a drug that reminds us of the beauty of God's creativity. And so this passage today that we're going to read, it should resonate with us on that level, and it's also through this lens of restoration that we should view it. The other thing I want to set up before we get into our passage is sort of the context of what's going on in First Peter. Now, I know this might have been covered uh, in the past couple of weeks, so I don't want to stay here too long, but I do want to paint a picture of what the church was like in Peter's day. This is, this is first century church. This is a few decades after Jesus ascended. This is the movement of Christianity making its way across the planet. And during Peter's day, the, the empire that existed was Rome. And they were massive, right? They, they ruled and occupied a massive amount of land. It's, it's modern day. If you look at a map, um, I mean, this stretches all throughout the Mediterranean from North Africa to the Middle East to Eastern Europe, of course, Italy, even into Northern Europe. And the persecution of the church in the first century was common because as Christianity became more widespread, it became more accepted, it fundamentally opposed what Roman rule was about. See, in Rome, it was common to make sacrifices to false gods. It was common to deify emperors, make them out to be gods. And in Christianity, we know that we're to serve one true God. And so they were refusing to go along with the cultural norms. And so all of a sudden, because of that, Christianity becomes a threat. There's some debate on when 1 Peter was written, uh, but some say it's around the year 62 or 63 AD, which is just one year before the great fire of Rome in 64 AD. And there's mixed reports about how this fire started. Sorry for the history lesson. But there's mixed reports on how this fire started. But the emperor Nero at the time used this incident for, political, for his political agenda. And he moved forward in widespread persecution of the church by torturing, persecuting, and killing many Christians, often blaming them for the fire that devastated almost two-thirds of the Roman Empire. So that was the context of the church in Peter's day. So when we hear verses about suffering, 
when we hear verses about adversity, this is what the church was encountering, right? Now, I want you to think about the church in our day, okay? Um, the church in the United States, when I say church, I'm talking like big C church, all of our denominations, um, we're, we're kind of a, a fractured and fragmented bunch, right? Like we have a lot of different little splits, and even within our own denominations, we'll disagree on certain theologies and we'll kind of form new branches and all this stuff. But as a whole, we're kind of lumped into this umbrella of evangelicals. And our country, while it grants religious freedom and expression, our country also supports activity that's fundamentally at odds with Christianity. Right now, in every state, um, it's possible to have an abortion, right? This is against the sanctity of life. This, is, this goes against what the Bible says about protecting um, the law, just protecting life in general, but specifically protecting children, the life of the unborn. Um, we have in our country uh, gotten away from a biblical definition of marriage. We have gender and identity issues that put us in the seat of being God instead of yielding to God as God. We uh, have seen in the last um, year and a half that there have been restrictions placed on a church that are inconsistent with other restrictions on businesses. Um, I feel like our culture has kind of gone out of its way to distance itself from Christianity, pushing Christianity to the perimeter rather than it being the center of where it once used to be. Right now, if you uh, are paying attention to the news just this past week, there's 17 missionaries in Haiti being held for ransom. Um, they're asking $1 million for each life that is kidnapped. Five of those people are children. And as these stories are being reported, what you find out is this is more common uh, than maybe we realize in countries like that. Um, look, I hope this is not the church's future, but it would not be surprising to me if in my lifetime it would be illegal for us to gather corporately. I, I hope that's not where we're going, but it, it would not surprise me if this is the case. And so Look, I'm not, it's not apples to apples, right? Like in Peter's day, way more barbaric, right? They built a coliseum and threw people in it and watched them fight to the death, okay? Our gladiators can't tackle without getting a 15-yard flag. Maybe we're a little softer or just more sophisticated. I don't know. But there's persecution, right? We're treated differently because of our faith. Peter's the, the Christians Peter's was, Peter was writing to, they were treated differently because of their faith. And in our day, it's the same way. And that's what makes this passage relatable. Okay, so we have this lens that we're going to view this scripture from um, that allows us to see uh, this longing for restoration, right? And then we have this context that makes this scripture relatable. When Peter talks about suffering, we can relate to that because we see suffering kind of happening uh, in our own culture. And so with that, now let's go ahead and jump into 1 Peter 5, 9 through 11. I'm going to read this out loud for us. Verse 9 says, Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little, while the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you to him be the dominion forever and ever amen all right so there's a few things i want to just kind of pick apart here uh i'm going to try to explain how i think they're applicable to our life but then i think there's a big response here for us as well 
Um, the first thing I want to point out is Peter, in addressing the church, says this, first two words, resist him. Resist him. He is talking about Satan. He is not talking about culture. I think that's important to note. In verse 8, we see, just the, the verse before, Peter describes Satan as an adversary that prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I want you to think about this for a second, okay? Peter's talking about suffering with the church. All throughout these letters, you can read them. You could, you could fact check me on this, right? Why didn't Peter drop the name of an emperor to the church? Why didn't Peter say, hey, that guy, resist him. Or run away from Nero. He's out to get you, right? Or they're chopping heads off over here. Avoid that area. Like, we don't, we don't see that at all in Peter's letters. In fact, we're going to look later on where Peter actually says to honor the emperor. I find that interesting. He also doesn't blame the Roman government for the suffering that the church is enduring, right? He puts the blame solely on Satan. He says, resist him. And I wrote in the notes here, he doesn't say to run and he doesn't say to fight. See, like sometimes I think we paint culture as this, this boogeyman that we need to run away from and avoid. Or sometimes we paint culture as the enemy, as this thing we need to attack and beat down. But what Peter is giving the credit for, for the suffering that the church is enduring is Satan. He says, resist him. And, and as I read that, I think where it's relevant to us is we have to understand that our enemy is not some political party or political leader. It's not a group of protesters supporting some new movement. It's not gender or marriage equality laws. It's not pro-choice organizations like Planned Parenthood. Our enemy is not wokeism or cancel culture. Our enemy is our great adversary. Our enemy is Satan. And we have to understand that the suffering that's happening at the, in this world is a result of Satan. And if we want a great example of how we engage with this, we, we don't have to look any further than to look at Jesus. Right? Jesus left heaven to engage a sinful culture. He came down to earth. I mean, just think about that. In a few months, we're celebrating his birth. During this Christmas season, we'll be getting into Advent, and we're looking at the birth of Jesus and, and worshiping him for that and celebrating that. But like a righteous, holy, pure God left his seat in heaven to engage, in a sinful, or engage with a sinful culture. And as he engaged with this culture, he loved people. And it's through this engagement of culture and love of people, ultimately, we have redemption. Right? Jesus ate with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a con artist and a thief and a liar. People hated Zacchaeus. But Jesus called him out of the tree. So we're going to go eat lunch. And after that lunch, Zacchaeus was a redeemed man. He was changed, right? Jesus, in the, in the presence of religious leaders, was sitting at a table, and he allowed a prostitute to come weep at his feet and wipe away her tears with her hair and, and clean his feet with her hair and her tears. And as everyone's looking at Jesus going, what are you doing? Jesus says, listen, she understands that she's been forgiven a lot, so she's going to love a lot. And he forgives her sins in the presence of all these guys who are hitting all the religious checkboxes, right? Jesus embraced children when his disciples were trying to shoo him away. Jesus touched the sick and the unclean. He, he daily walked around these types of people because he engaged culture and he loved people. I mean, even the guys he surrounded himself with, like he spent three years 
with some pretty ordinary guys. One of them ultimately was going to betray him. The leader of these 12 guys who wrote the letter that we're reading today, in my mind, he's like a first century version of a Shalmatian. <laughs> I can say that because I'm from Shalmet. But he was, he was loud. He was opinionated. He was outspoken. He was quick to fight. He was a fisherman. That checks the boxes. That's a Shalmatian. But this is who Jesus engaged with, right? This is who Jesus loved. And because of that, redemption came to the world. Listen, this idea that we are to resist. Resist is a verb that means to withstand the action or effect of. Right? It's not running. It's not fighting. It's just withstanding the action of what Satan brings to the table. And then Peter follows this up with another small phrase explaining how you do this. You resist him by being firm in your faith. What does that mean? It means that we trust God's promises and his truth. Again, looking at the life of Jesus, he engaged culture and he loved people. But he also was firm in the faith. He spent time with the Father. He prayed daily. He he did the things that Scripture lays out for us to do. And Peter reminds the church of these things just throughout his letter. And this is not an exhaustive list, but I'm just going through them kind of quickly for us here. But Peter reminds the church to resist Satan be firm in your faith. 1 Peter 1, he says to be holy. Resist Satan, be firm in the faith. 1 Peter 2, he says to put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Resist Satan, be firm in the faith. 1 Peter 2, he goes on to give some identity statements to remind the church of who they are. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own possession, all so that you might proclaim his excellencies. Resist Satan, be firm in the faith. 1 Peter 2, it goes on to say, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. That's huge during this time. All right? Resist Satan, be firm in the faith. For your marriages, 1 Peter 3, husband and wives, honor your spouses. Love your spouse selflessly. Resist Satan, be firm in the faith. 1 Peter 4, be self-controlled, be sober-minded, and love one another earnestly. In 1 Peter 5, resist Satan, be firm in the faith. Clothe yourself with humility towards one another and humble yourselves. Right? So this charge to resist Satan is followed up with a charge to be firm in the faith. And just as we look in just the letter of Peter, we have a ton of examples there of how we are to be firm in the faith. But if we look in all of scripture, um, God's word is full of promises and truths that we are to be firm in the faith on. I do want to mention this. I think it is worth noting the rest of verse nine, it says, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Look, resisting Satan doesn't mean that suffering will go away. In fact, sometimes I think it's quite the opposite. The more we dig in and stand firm on the faith, the more maybe suffering may come. I'm going to steal this illustration from a pastor. I'm not going to take it as my own, but I think it's applicable here. Um, You know, the saints just had a bye week. And there was a story that came out about Jameis Winston and all the film study he's doing and how he's preparing and what he's learned in his, you know, first season as a Saints starter and how he's getting better and improving. You know, the Saints play tomorrow night. They play Seattle. You know what? I I can almost guarantee you Jameis Winston did not spend a second of time studying film on was Seattle's water boy. Right? Like, 
He didn't, he didn't look at the angle of his wrist as he squeezed the bottle, right? He wasn't, he wasn't looking at how much water made it into each of the guy's mouths and how much was spilled. Like, he didn't study any of that because the water boy is not in the game, right? What Jameis Winston studied was the defense that was going to try to get him, right? And, and the same the way this applies to us is the more you resist Satan, the more you're firm in the faith, be ready for things to come your way. Right? If you're in the game, be ready. Right? Be ready. Satan's not worried about the water boys for Team Jesus. He's worried about the people who are in the game advancing the kingdom of God. All right. Though this suffering may happen, verse 10 speaks to this truth. Uh, suffering may describe your situation, but it doesn't define who you are. I love verse 10. This is, this is the redemptive agenda. We're hearing God's heart here. It says, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter writes this letters to the exiles. 1 Peter 1.1 starts off, he says, to the exiles of the dispersion. And he goes on to list areas that Christians were scattered all around. But what he's reminding Christians of is that their ultimate resting place is not this world. Like, you're a spiritual exile here on this planet. Your home is heaven, and you're not there yet. You will be there one day, but right now as you're on this earth, you're living as an exile. And verse 10 speaks to this, that one day uh, in God's eternal glory in Christ, he will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This is the hope that we get to look forward to. This is the redemption that the biblical narrative speaks to. This is the restoration that we uh, are drawn to. And in the end, verse 11, God will restore everything. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. He's the alpha and the omega. He was, he is, he is to come. This is the God that we get to worship. And so Peter is reminding the church, hey, it might be hard now, but you serve a God whose plan was always to redeem. You serve a God who was before is and is to come. You serve a God who is forevermore, and he will rule, and he will reign, and he will bring his new kingdom one day. And this is, this is the hope. He's building the church up, right? So how do we respond to this? I think for me, what excites me most about this is that we get to play a part in this redemptive agenda. God lays it out for us, but he calls us in as participants. See, we are exiles. We're spiritual exiles. Our home is heaven. This world's not our own. This life is not our own. And uh, I just want to kind of quickly go through uh, Jeremiah 29, because I think it's some truth here for us. So everyone knows Jeremiah 29, 11, right? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, right? We all know that one. But the 10 verses before that, I think, are, are really special too. Um, Jeremiah is talking to uh, the nation of Israel, who is exiled in this moment, right? And he's communicating something that the Lord is wanting them to hear. And the Lord wants them to hear this. Basically, um, God is saying, listen, y'all are going to be here, I think he says, for like 70 years. Maybe a little more than that, right? And he tells the nation of Israel, he says, hey, plant crops, build homes, marry, have children. Like he's giving them commands to lock in, to, to live in a pagan land with pagan cultures. And then he says this in Jeremiah 29, 7. He says, seek the welfare where I've exiled you into, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. See, God's calling us as exiles on this earth to seek the welfare 
of where we're exiled into. And so for us in this room, that's somewhere in St. Tammany Parish, right? If we're in Christ, our home is heaven, and we're exiles here on this earth right now, and God's called us into that. He wants us to seek the welfare. He wants us to resist Satan and to be firm in the faith and to build homes and plant crops and have children and lay down roots. He wants us to do the chipping Joanna Gaines story where you find a place and you love it well and you inject life into that place because it's through all of this that people get to understand this redemptive God, his love and his beauty. Paul calls this the ministry of reconciliation. He says that in Corinthians that we've been reconciled back to God through Christ. And because of that, we get to now participate as this in this ministry of reconciliation. We get to go out and explain to people that, hey, these two things that were incompatible because of Jesus, now they're compatible. And I'm living proof of that, right? And so we get to partake in this ministry of reconciliation. It's through our engagement of culture and through our love of people, we're going to bring a taste of what this new kingdom looks like to the world around us. All right, we'll continue by the grace of God and power of God to move forward with his redemptive agenda. And so Here's what I would like you to consider. Um, I want you to think about your neighborhood. I want you to think about the people you drive by every day when you go to work or you drive by every day when you come home. Right? There's natural rhythms there. There's people that need to know about God's redemptive agenda. Those people, because they're made in God's image, desire this restoration. They may just not know it yet. Right? What about your street? What about the people that live next door? You know, I... This, this, this coming week, you're going to have an incredible opportunity to meet dozens, if not hundreds, of your neighbors. They'll be all knocking on your house wanting some candy, right? And it's an opportunity to participate in this redemptive agenda, right? To serve and to love, to engage. What about your job? I'm so thankful. I love the people that I get to work with. It's, it's a joy to go to work. It truly is. I, I love my work family um, and, and I love the work that I get to do there. But what about you? What, what about your cubicle or your nine to five or whatever it is that you're doing Monday through Friday? Right? Who are the people that you come in contact with? And it's not just about the people. It's also about the work. Right? Like God created us to be designers and producers and builders, people who can lead and organize, people who can equip, people who can send out. This is what God designed us to do, and it's through our job we can usher in this redemptive agenda. We could show people what our creator God looks like. What about our family? I know this is a time of year where families tend to gather more, right? Thanksgiving, Christmas, and I'm thankful. Again, I have a, a family that those encounters are relatively peaceful and enjoyable, but I know for many people, sometimes there's tension in the room, and sometimes those aren't always the easiest moments to have, but the holidays have a way of bringing people together. What about the people in your family? How are you engaging? How are you loving? How are you serving so that we can usher in this redemptive agenda, turn people on to who our Redeemer God is? I think we're all uniquely positioned for this. I think God, uh, it wasn't by mistake you are where you are. The house is on the street that it's on. Your job is in the location that it's on. You're in the family that you're in. I think God's put us all there for this moment. And look, as we keep journeying through Peter's letters, I want us to remember that we get to participate in God's redemptive work, despite the suffering, despite the adversity, and we get to be part of the work that God is doing. And I don't know about you, but that excites me. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that you see us as worthy and valuable, that when Adam and Eve uh, broke what you designed, you didn't just toss humanity out. 
but from the moment you realize there's sin, you are planning a way to redeem creation back to you. God, I'm humbled by that. And I love that you didn't just send Jesus to die for me so that I can kind of be preserved for heaven one day, but that you actually called me into this redemptive work as well. That you've, you've because of the work in my life uh, of Christ and because of the work that I get to do, that people can understand your glory and your love, that people can understand your mercy. And God, for people in this room, I pray that uh, as they consider these words today, that they would maybe be challenged this week to uh, serve people, to engage with one another, to love people, to point people towards you, to let them know that, hey, that restoration, that new life, that thing that you're drawn to, it can only be satisfied with God. God, help people to do this as we live on mission to you. God, thank you so much for your patience with us. Thank you for your mercy. Father, we love you. Thank you for loving us. We ask this in your name. Amen. As we close, I do want us to end the way we always end by reciting the Great Commission. And I think this is a great reminder of just this idea that we've been called into this redemptive work, right? Let's go make disciples. So would you read this with me as we close? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. God bless.